morning, everyone. Powerful song. Let us pause for a second and we'll pray together. God, uh, when we get to these judgment parts of the Bible, it's hard for us until we put ourselves in the role, until we make it personal. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would do that today, that, that we would, this would not just be an empty academic exercise of understanding uh, difficult parts of Scripture, but that we would uh, be ready to see ourselves in it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's dismiss our children. And if you've got kids, that means ages like kindergarten through fifth grade. They've got lessons waiting for them, age appropriate. We've got a little PG stuff in the, in the sermon today. So that, they got age appropriate, awesome lessons waiting for them right now in the education center. Well, I'm really glad that you're here. We're beginning this three-week series on uh, the difficult parts of the Bible. Look, the Bible is like the bestseller, right? I mean, it's just like it's a best-selling book of all times. Every year, it outsells every other book. But that doesn't mean that everybody approves it, and that certainly doesn't mean that everybody else understands it. In fact, it's some of the, the weirdest parts of the stuff that we read about here in this section of the Bible, the Old Testament, that we're going to have to grapple with in, in the next three weeks. It's this stuff that leaves a lot of us scratching our heads, and frankly, some of us, you know, not maybe in this room, but people in culture uh, at large wanting to just ban it, like we, this is just unhealthy reading material. So that's why we need to take a tour of the troubling parts of that troublesome testament, the Old Testament. Now, we begin today with maybe the most troubling part of the most troubling testament, and it's the case of the missing tribes. And what we mean when we say the case of the missing tribes is that part of the Bible where God commanded the extermination of the tribes of Canaan. So let's get right to it, shall we? Here's the difficult portion. It's God's command through Moses to the people of Israel as they're entering into the area we know of as Palestine. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, that's a lot of sites, um, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. So there it is. And you can see, obviously, why this is so difficult. Now, why is this a problem? Well, for Jews and Christians alike, it's a problem because it's so at odds with the portrait of Yahweh, Israel's God, that you see everywhere else in Scripture. This is a God we read about in Scripture who is a God of justice, of long-suffering, and compassion. And you don't have to get to the New Testament. You don't have to get to Jesus to feel that way about Israel's God. Read the Old Testament prophets and hear them thunder God's profound care for the poor, the orphan, and yeah, even the foreigner, the outsider, the person who is a non-Jew, a non-Israelite. God demands just laws. He demands just rulers. He hates lies and hands that shed innocent blood. He's so clear about this. He literally pleads with people to repent so that he would not have to judge them. In fact, he says this through the prophet Ezekiel, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. Friends, this is the God of the Old Testament. And you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. And, and in fact, when you ask what is the impact of this, it, it reverberates forward, yes, from this little tiny ancient tribe called Israel, 
It reverberates forward into having actually shaped Western society. It has inspired our due process. It has inspired just war theory and imagining a world of peace where swords will be beaten into or spears will be turned into pruning hooks and swords will be beaten into plowshares. That's from the Old Testament, that whole picture. So it is precisely and only because people raised on the Bible's values and the Bible's God expect God to act justly and with compassion. It's precisely for that reason that these passages are so jarring and so hard to understand. So we should freely admit that is a problem. So we'll dive into it, but maybe we should, we should think of these commands as divine genocide. Is that what we're dealing with here? Is this divine genocide? Is this ethnic cleansing? Richard Dawkins certainly thinks so. Maybe you've read him. He's becoming sort of a spokesman for the new atheists who are kind of really making atheism, agnosticism, a new wave of thinking these days. And he calls Yahweh, listen to what he says about Yahweh. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a racist, infanticidal, genocidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. <laughs> well, tell us how you really think, Rich. So, so now, if you start with that, I mean, if that's your starting point and you're not even willing to look at how the Jews really saw their God, well, maybe you think that any justification, any reasons that we would marshal today to talk about the conquest in context when you would say with, with Dawkins, no way, man, you, it's like you're justifying ISIS. And he would throw that in your face if you're a Christian here today because, of course, we regularly, resoundingly criticize radical Islam and its violence in the name of God. And yet Richard Dawkins would say, that's what God did here in your Bible. But what if a closer look revealed several key facts that help explain God's reasons for the destruction of the Canaanites? In fact, what if, what if we took a, look, a, a deeper look into the context and it showed that our own position in time chronologically and our own position with its own unique and curious ethical concerns compromised our ability to judge this clearly or without bias? What if that was true? Now, stop here. Now, some of you, I know you're going to time out and you're going to say, wait a minute, Rick, I don't want to hear about your context. I don't want to hear about reasons. I don't want to hear about historical considerations or key facts. Because <laughs> you're going to maybe say to me, look, Rick, don't try to snow me with the context. I, I know what I read and what I read is genocide. Listen, if that's you, I'd like to offer a respectful but firm pushback. Don't ask grown-up questions if you don't want grown-up answers. All right, so we're going to give a grown-up answer today. This is a serious charge, genocide. It's a serious charge. So it deserves a serious answer. So we're going to give you one today. But to get it, you're going to have to think deeply, and you're going to have to think clearly, and you're going to have to be willing to put your own biases aside. You're going to have to look clearly at history and historical context, and you're going to have to look at the past in light of the present. And you're going to look at how uh, God has progressively revealing who he is and his plans for the human race so that we can understand the scripture in light of its own context and its own unfolding story. If Christianity were true, would you want to know? Well, if you want to know, then you'll want to know the answers to the hardest questions. And so here we go. How do we begin to contextualize God's command to conquer? First, we need to realize one thing right out of the gate, and that's this isn't genocide. 
What is genocide? You go to the dictionary, it defines it like this. The deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially those of a particular ethnic group or a nation. Now, there's always a racial component to genocide, right? Germans versus the Jews in Europe. The Hutu versus the Tutsi in Rwanda. You got to remember that, but from about 10 years ago, basically half a million people killed in ethnic cleansing in that country. And so with that, there's always a racial thing going on. There's an ethnic thing. It's racial superiority. We're better than you, therefore you have to die. That is not what happened in Canaan. That's not what happened in Canaan. It wasn't extermination of an ethnic group, and it wasn't a racist thing. And you say, well, how do you know that, Rick? Because it sounds like that. Well, listen, first of all, one of the tribes that's to be removed from the, from the land is the Hittites. Now, parenthetically, uh, a lot of scholars didn't even think the Hittites were a thing until just recently. The Bible, in terms of its reliability, is often guilty until proven innocent, and this is one of those cases. They thought, well, the Hittites, we don't have any evidence of a group like the Hittites ever existing. Well, now, the science of archaeology is young, so now all this evidence is poured in. that There was not, not just a tribe of the Hittites. There's a vast empire and expanded all the way into Turkey. In fact, Turkey was the headquarters of the Hittite empire. There's a great big museum of the Hittites now in modern-day Turkey. You can go visit it if you wanted to. So what we're saying here is that uh, if, if the Hittite empire expanded beyond the, uh, the bounds of the promised land and it was an ethnic cleansing thing, then the Israelites would go after them wherever they were, like the Germans went after the Jews, no matter what country that they were in. Well, that doesn't happen. You see that they had an interest in the land. They don't have an interest in exterminating all the Hittites. They have an interest in the land promised to Abraham which is geographically limited, Joshua chapter 1, verse 4. Your territory will be from the wilderness and Lebanon to the great Euphrates River and all the, uh, and all the land of the Hittites and west to the Mediterranean Sea. And so they never chased down the Hittites outside of that geographic zone. Never happened. The conquest was first about the land, not about ethnic cleansing. Okay, so what about this race card? Did they think that they were a superior race? No. In fact, God is very blunt about this. And people who are Bible students always scratch their head a little bit about this whole thing. Well, this had to have been uh, motivated by racial superiority because the Jews just thought of themselves that they were so much better genetically than everybody else. Uh, no, because God told them that they weren't better than anybody else. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, in context. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. So this is very explicit, by the way, and we don't have time to go into what God all says to his chosen people, but he basically calls them stubborn, willful, stiff-necked, and uh, kind of intransigent and rebellious children. That's what he calls them. So he says, this is not about you being so awesome. You're not the gold star students here, but the time for their judgment has come. And that leads to a second thing that importantly helps us contextualize the conquest. The conquest was justified not as genocide, but as capital punishment on a wicked and irredeemably bad people. Now, here's a warning. Here's the PG warning, okay? Um, I'm going to offer some graphic depictions of exactly how corrupt this culture had become. Uh, but I have to go into this detail, and I, I have to, I feel like for the skeptic in the room, or else you're just not going to believe it. Or else you're going to hear this whole idea of holy war and you're going to just have this image that's going to pop into your mind. Okay, there's the Canaanites and there's these noble pagans just living in their, in their pagan utopia until the marauding Jews came. And that'll be the way you think of it. 
No. In fact, the Canaanites were an example of wretched debauchery. And I use those two words uh, with consideration. And we know that, by the way, not just because of what the Bible says about these corrupt seven tribes. We know it because of what they say about themselves. See, we now have archaeological material about what they say about themselves and what was normal in their particular society, the artifacts that they left behind. So here's a listing of the things that God thought was worthy of capital punishment. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, idolatry. Now, I'm going to start with the one that you think is least worthy of capital punishment, but there's a reason for this. If you're Richard Dawkins, of course, you look at God judging people for idolatry, and it it makes no sense. God reserves only worship for himself. He's some kind of jealous, insecure dolt, like a junior high boy or something like that. And here, in fact, I have a quote. He said, God's monumental rage, this is Richard Dawkins again, God's monumental rage whenever his chosen people flirted with a rival God resembles nothing so much as sexual jealousy of the worst kind. That's not what idolatry is. Idolatry is not the thing that raises the green-eyed monster in God. Idolatry is to turn something that is less than God into a God and worship it. Devote your life, energy, and priority to that thing. That's what idolatry is. See, your highest ideals are embodied in your view of the divine. And that's true in this culture and in cultures around the world. Tell me how you look at God, and I'll tell you the highest ideals of your culture. Okay? So in our particular culture, the highest view of God is that he just is tolerant, that he just has unlimited capacity to tolerate anything, any behaviors and any, any ideas. And so then I'll tell you about the moral and ethical character of that culture. So in, in, in Canaan, their God was Baal. And, and because their God was Baal, because that was the highest ideal that they would shoot for, embodied in the divine, and that was Baal, Well, that's why every wicked thing that corrupts and kills people became not just possible in that culture, but became praiseworthy in that culture. And so that's what flows out of this. So if there is a God, if there is a creator, God of gods, idolatry is an offense to that being, not because he's insecure, not because he wants to stifle religious freedom, but because idolatry is a lie and it ravages the things that God loves and God loves people. Idolatry is an offense to God because it's a lie. And it ravages the things that God loves. And God loves people. So that's why idolatry is mentioned first. Because all the evils that I'm going to list now following flow from that first sin, which is the pollution of your vision of God. For example, we get to adultery. Canaanite religion was a fertility religion. And as such, it involved temple sex. So when you went about your religious practices in that culture, it would always involve promiscuity and sexual intercourse. So uh, when you went to the temple, uh, you would hear about Baal and his uh, liaisons with all sorts of divine figures, among them his consort Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth is described by the Canaanites as, quote, the goddess of eroticism and sensuality, of conjugal love, as well as adultery of brides and prostitutes, transvestites, and pedophiles. So the idea is that you went to uh, church... And the worshipers engage in sex with uh, temple prostitutes. And um, other times they would observe sex. So you would observe it. It was pantomimed in front of you by male prostitutes who would usually play both roles. They would dress up as women and as men and playing these roles in an orgy that you would see in the, uh, in the worship setting. And so to participate in these sexual orgies was to unify yourself 
with the gods, with the divine, and bring blessing down on you and your farm and your family. Then there was incest. And speaking of these gods, Baal and his consorts, they were incestuous. The, the gods of Canaan were, were incestuous, and proudly so. In Canaanite theology, Baal has sex with his mother, his sister, and his daughter. So theology prompts morality, right? That's the way, like I said, it's the way it is here. That's the way it is for them. So Canaanite laws relaxed on this gradually over the centuries so that incest about the time of the conquest was acceptable, most forms of it anyhow. In fact, in an Egyptian dream book, dreams of having sex with your mother or sister were considered good omens. Then we get to homosexuality. Now, this is an interesting thing because, of course, this is increasing in our day and acceptance is, is, uh, is par. But no, no ancient Near East culture condemned homosexual behavior. Did you know that? Only the Jews. So the Jews kind of stand out as having a brand new sexual ethic. So they're like progressive sexually. That's really what's interesting about this. They're saying, look, here's how everybody else is doing it. Um, there's uh, some, some examples of sex we're going to get into in just a second. It's just kind of spilling the bounds all over the place. We're going to go with heterosexual monogamy as normative and moral. That's what we're going to go with. That was progressive. It was the brand new thing. We're going to try this. We're going to leave behind traditional sex, and we're going to do this. So this is very ironic, right? So we consider a progressive sexuality today, whatever we consider that to be, is actually regressive because it's sexuality that goes back to Canaan. It's sexuality that goes back to Egypt, back to Rome, back to Greece. It's regressive, not really progressive. The, the Jews were really the progressive uh, sexual experimenters in their day saying, I think this is the way to do it. And we're going to call this moral. And see, the problem in Canaan isn't just about abusing the heterosexual design of sex, which is very clear naturally, right? And doing so among consenting adults who do whatever they want in the privacy of their own bedroom. No, in Abraham's time, the men of Canaan, for example, this is 400 years before the conquest. In in Abraham's time, the men of Canaan tried to rape, homosexually rape, vulnerable strangers. And they treated it like it was just an everyday thing. You're part of this culture, man. You're going to engage in the way we do sex here. Well, it's a good thing in our day we never see people in positions of power abuse their position to sexually molest other people, like, say, in the entertainment industry. At least that never happens. So we're very different from them on that score. Then there's bestiality. Now, we don't want to talk about this. I know. It's like we know there's a thing, but we don't want to think that it really uh, lives or exists in the real world. It does exist in the real world. And for the Canaanites, it wasn't uh, weird. It was normal. It was so normal, they made laws about which animals you could have sex with and which you couldn't. Now, where did they get that idea from? They're gods. Baal uh, was said to copulate with the beasts and created children with cows. And so that's what the Canaanites did. Oh, no, they didn't have children with cows. That's biologically impossible. But they did have sex with their livestock. In fact, scholars now speculate that almost all domesticated animals in Canaan had sexual contact with animals or with humans. Now, that might understand, by the way, just that, that idea. Just think about the commands now to go in and destroy not just the people, but the animals. And it may help you understand why uh, even the animals were not allowed to be part of God's start over society in the land. And finally, we get to the coup de grace, child sacrifice. Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity represented as an upright bullheaded idol, okay? So a bullheaded idol with a human body. And they made bronze statues of Baal with a gaping open mouth and outstretched arms like this. So the worshiper who wanted to procure blessing and favor for their land, their family, their progeny uh, would bring a child 
and they would bind up that child and they'd put it on the arms of the idol. Now the idol was hollow and so it would have a fire that would be cooked inside and so the idol would get, the bronze idol would get red hot. And so then the bound up child would be placed on the arms of the idol and it would immediately uh, burst into flames. And then it would shrivel up and as it shriveled up, it would roll into the mouth of the God so that the God would literally consuming the baby and the baby would fall into the cauldron below. This happened regularly. Almost every family in Canaan would have practiced this. It would have been normal. And oh, by the way, the victims were not only babies, but children as old as four. And we just know this. The archaeological artifacts left behind. This is a society in full revolt against God. And so when I say that they were bad and irredeemably so, now maybe you understand. How does a loving God allow this? See, this is so interesting and ironic to me, AC3, because we rail against God because he doesn't stop Holocaust. But when he did once, we call him evil. That's what this was. This was a Holocaust. And God stopped it. So this is a society that um, uh, desperately uh, rebels against God. And now you maybe say, well, but, but we're Christians and, and we believe that God is a God of grace and redemption. Where's the grace? even for the worst and the most hideous of sins. Yes, okay, they were objectively bad, but still, why doesn't God wait maybe a little while longer? You know, give them time to turn and repent. Maybe they'll turn and, and change. Isn't God about redemption? Well, in fact, there were some Canaanites who did repent. In fact, that's in the conquest narrative, conveniently missed by critics. The most famous of which is Rahab. She's a prostitute living in Jericho right before the conquest happens. And she sees the handwriting on the wall. She has seen the mighty deeds of Yahweh as he has liberated his people from bondage in Egypt. And she sees there is a God above all gods. And in this radical act of faith, just a trusting loyalty, she abandons her gods and says, Yahweh, the God of gods, will be my God. And just entrusts herself to Yahweh. And she is spared. And God welcomes her. And they welcome her. The Jews say, come on in. There's room for you in the family of God. And so Rahab from Jericho becomes a follower of the one true God. And oh, by the way, God doesn't just enfold her into the family. She actually becomes part of the family lineage of, does anyone know? Jesus Christ, prostitute, a Canaanite from Jericho. Oh, God's gracious. And he will enfold the repentant into his family and eagerly desires to do so. But most had hardened, and they were too far gone. Here's the thing. If you ask why God isn't more patient with them, the scripture says God had been patient. He had been enduring their incredible rebellion, as I just detailed, for centuries. How do I know this? 450 years before the conquest, God prophesies to the, to the forefather of these Jews who are entering the promised land. And here's what he says to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What is God saying? He's saying, Abraham, listen, your children cannot inhabit the land right now. They cannot permanently take possession of it because I'm currently uh, dealing with the current inhabitants. I'm dealing with them right now. So your, your, your progenitors, your descendants are going to move off to, to um, Egypt for four generations. And for 400 years, they're going to languish there. Because I'm dealing patiently with this group. I just want to see if they'll turn. 
Because the cup of their sin is not full yet. It hasn't spilt over. And we are to assume by that on the day that it would, that God would judge them. So here's the fourth thing. Let's remember that this is not an ongoing command. Now, I'm going to save most of this for extended. I do hope that some of you stick around for this because we really have to grapple with how these commands are distinct from radical Islam that we see today. Because as soon as you criticize radical Islam, then the secular uh, uh, voices in our culture will immediately try to point you, Christian, to the conquest passages and say, see, it's just the same thing. The God of the Bible commands violence in his name. It's exactly the same. It's not exactly the same. And in part because we know this is not a standing command for holy war. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but doubly so for those of us who love and follow the Lord Jesus, who calls us to love our enemies and turn the other cheek and pray for those who abuse you and love those who are on the outside. And we know, and the Jews knew this too, friend, if you had polled any one of them, does God love the outsider and all nations? And any one of them who understood the blessing of Father Abraham would have said, yes, it is God's intent to bless all the nations through us. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in extended, but it was not an ongoing command and no Jew understood it as an ongoing command when it was done. The Bible says, after this, the land had rest from war. Fifth, we ask, why extermination? I mean, maybe, you know, there could be coexistence, right? Coexist. On my bumper sticker, it says right there, why didn't they just coexist? Why not love their enemies as Jesus would eventually teach, which would teach Christians to be tolerant of people with a different religious viewpoint? Friends, listen, okay, here's where you really have to climb inside the historical context. You have to understand what life was like back in the ancient Near East. You understand, every culture was brutal, authoritarian, warring, and lawless. Yes, they had law codes, but the idea that you have of the rule of law in a society and the defense of human rights wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. So if you imagine that they endeavored to appease, to honor their rights, in that cultural milieu, if Israel tries to live in the promised land side by side with the Canaanites, it would not lead to their gratitude and eventual conversion. As the Canaanites say, "Mm, I just love that you're around us teaching us the right way. No, it would have led certainly to Israel's degradation and it would have led to Israel's extermination. Why, Why do we even have an Israel? They were a tiny little tribe. There were seven tribes, God says, were bigger and, and uh, more vast, more stronger, bigger numbers. Why, why do you have no neighbors that are the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites? Why? But I bet you some of you know a Jew. Why? How did they make it out of that uh, time? Well, I'll tell you how. Because they, uh, God commanded them to not coexist with those neighbors. In fact, he'll tell them why. Exodus chapter 23, verse 32. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Well, that's prophetic because it's exactly what happened. The Jews didn't drive out all the Canaanites as we're gonna see and those Canaanites eventually converted the Jews to their detestable ways and their detestable gods and centuries later, guess what? It's the Jews offering their babies in the fire. How do we know that? We just got to read Jeremiah. And there's the prophet thundering, breaking jars in the valley of Topheth, the place of the sacrifice of infants. And he says, this is not what God commanded. It didn't even enter his mind. 
And how could the people of God be doing this? I mean, you can see him rending his garments and mourning for the depth to which God's people had fallen, that they would ape the ways of Canaan. That's what they did. And guess what happened to them? The land vomited them out. Why? Because God is fair. No respect for persons. And he told them that he would. You do these same things, the same judgment will come on you. So finally, we have to get to the hardest part of that, and that's why, why the innocents, the women and the children. I mean, why are they included in this? Now, this problem may actually not be quite the problem that it seems if we are ready to go with some study from a specific uh, Old Testament scholar named Dr. Hess. He says that we are now looking at the commands of the conquest and notice that they're very similar to a standard ancient Near East militaristic idiom. And I'll give you an example. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 6, we read, We completely destroyed them as we had done to Shihon, king of Heshbon, destroying the men, women, and children of every city. Now that phrase, destroying the men, women, and children, is actually a phrase used outside the Bible. And scholars have noted that standard military bravado in ancient Near East warfare, and you'll remember that this sort of is kind of the way people of the ancient or the, the modern Near East continue to speak in, in big, expansive, hyperbolic terms. You remember the Iraqi war, right? The mother of all battles lasted less than 100 days. So it's kind of a standard way to talk. And, and, and so here they know two other things that go along with that. One is that the Canaanites survived the conquest. In fact, we know this. Uh, did you see recently there was a DNA test of Lebanese and people in the area that realized that they had genetic markers from the ancient Canaanites? And so they said, hey, the Canaanites survived the exile or the, the conquest, just like the Bible said that they did. And uh, so God even gives instructions beforehand about how they were supposed to deal with the survivors of the conquest. So it leads to a natural assumption that these commands were not necessarily taken literally. It was just like, just, just destroy everything. So it did not, in their minds, necessarily include non-combatants. And the second observation that confirms this is that there's no mention anywhere. You can read the thing. The commands are hard. Destroy everything. The men, the women, the children. But the actual description of the battles include no description of women or children ever being killed. One of the reasons for that may be that the cities mentioned, like Jericho, like Ai, were not cities the way you think of cities with suburbs and children are playing in the streets, and then all oh, the Jews come in and kill everybody. They were actually military forts is what they were. They were outposts. So the presumption is that Israel's wars were directed against military strongholds where very few civilians would have even lived. The civilians would live in the outside areas. The actual, you can actually see a picture there of a, mili a classic Canaanite military fortress. It's very small. A few hundred people, maybe at most, can live inside. The civilians would live outside. Now, here's also an interesting thing. The phrase drive them out is, three time, is used three times more often than the word destroy. And again, this underlines the idea that this is not really about the innocents. It's about the land. Drive them out. It's about the land. And as you might expect, you say, well, how would that happen? You know, they besiege a city. Well, just like you might imagine, when you besiege a military outpost like that, everybody gets out. People who do not simply wait there to be killed, they get out. And we have ancient Near East texts that show exactly what happens when a city falls under siege. And the first thing that happens is the vulnerable leave. And the people that stay are the combatants, which is maybe another reason why we have no record of women or children actually being killed in the conquest, despite the command for them to do so. 
but still the commands are there, right? God said this. So let's deal with it. I want you to ask yourself the question, does God have a right to take life, any life that he himself gives? And the answer is yes, right? And you don't. And we know this because when people do presume to take life, what do we say? We say, don't play God. Because we understand that God can play God, but you can't play God, right? And so when people die, God doesn't murder them. I said this to someone this week. I said, God is incapable of murder. They said, what? No, I, I can't. From a biblical worldview point of view that a person is an immortal spirit, when people, when God takes them, when they die, he takes them. And so in some sense, they, they, they could not be ever murdered. They can just be, they can change locations. God changes their location. And God has the right to do this to whomever he wants and whenever he wants. I think we should admit that that is true. God, the giver of this life, has that right. The problem then is not that he commands them to be taken. It's the, the problem is that he asks humans to do the taking. He asks the humans to do the transfer of location. And isn't that like commanding them to murder? Well, I would say no, and I'll tell you why. Where, where do our moral duties come from? They come from God's commands, right? God commands something, therefore it is a moral duty. And where do those things come from? They come from God's holy and loving character. And in that case, the Israelites believed that they had a divine command to conquer the land and kill any who resisted. So in light of the command, it would be justified, but if they had done it on their own, it would have been murder. If God had taken them with an earthquake, we wouldn't say that was murder. God just used people in this case as the means of taking them, which would have been wrong if God hadn't asked it. But it's not morally wrong for God to do so. But then you have to ask, well, then is God loving? I mean, maybe God's a horrific. Um, if he's the foundation of our moral uh, concerns, then maybe he's a monster. Is this consistent with God's holy, loving character? Well, think about it. I mean, growing up in a Canaanite culture, what is the likelihood that everyone in that culture absorbs the hideous values as their own and now worships the detestable gods and does the detestable deeds and lives in rebellion against El and, uh, and uh, suffers eternal separation from God as a result? I mean, God knows, but it's probably really, really high. But what if, as many Christians believe, God's grace covers innocence until they reach an age of accountability? Then the only hope of a Canaanite living after death, living in a true state of bliss and blessing with God, is if they were spared that culture. Now, it sounds insensitive even to mention this, but if it's true, then there was a mercy, even in this terrifying command. And by the way, again, we'll talk about this in extended, about why that's different and how that's different from from how ISIS justifies their violence today. But if we ask ourselves this, it's the final question is like this. Who has God wronged? That's really what we're asking. Who has God wronged? Has he wronged the people? They were incurably wicked. Has he wronged the, the women, the children, the non-combatants? They were likely not even involved. So look, we know from Abraham that God's will is to bless all the nations of the world. We know that. The Jews knew that. But God's concern is to pull everybody into his eternal family. But yes, once there was a time, there was a period in history, a short period in fact, in order to bring in the blessing through Messiah, one tribe had to be protected while simultaneously judging seven others. But that one tribe did survive miraculously against all odds. And Messiah was brought in. 
And now through him, we bless those who persecute us and we turn the other cheek and we love our enemies and we pray for those who despitefully abuse us because Messiah said so. Well, so what do you do with this? I mean, there's no, there's no ongoing, there's no standing command to holy war. We, we do not propagate faith by violence. That's not anywhere the upshot of these passages. What are you going to do with this? Here's what you do with this. You realize that though we stand in an age of grace, God has not changed. God is just. God is holy. God is pure. And he hates the things that ravish the things that he loves. That's God. That's God then, and that's God now. And I look at the list of things that he judged, adultery, incest, sexual deviance, violence, lies, and I see myself in this list. I don't know about you, but I see myself in this list. I've made God jealous. And not a green-eyed, weird, junior-high jealousy. You understand? I've made God jealous by putting other gods in front of him. I lined up those lovers and God hates them. Why does he hate them? Why would he judge them and judge me if I would continue to cling to them? Because he hates the things that ravish the things that he loves. Before it's too late, before it's too late, would you see the jealous love of God coming after you with a furious desire to bless you with life. I want you to think about that as you listen to this song. I chose the gallows to the aisle. You get it, right? When faced with the devotion of your heavenly lover who would call you up into life and just walk down the aisle and commit to him. We would rather choose gallows. We would rather choose the things that bring us death. Oh, they promise life in the short run. They do. But in the long run, it's gallows. Would you choose the aisle today? Would you choose the aisle and to be wedded to the one who loves you with a jealous kind? Let's pray. God, I pray in the mind right now of that person wrestling with who you are, that they would see you today for who you are, holy and perfect, righteous, altogether, and a jealous kind of love for the cherished objects of your affection, that you would come after those things which destroy the things that you love. And it's a furious kind of love. It is a relentless kind of love. We might wish for less love, but there you are. The God who loves us with a jealous kind of love. May we choose the aisle today. Lord, maybe there's someone here who has been on the fence. And today would be the day they reject the gallows of their own leadership. And be wedded to the Lord Jesus Christ. And enter into his bride and so be joined to the one who gave his life for the one that he loves. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, but one that is by grace, 
And oh, Lord, that today we would let grace bathe over us and we would all in this place become Rahab. It doesn't matter our ethnicity, our gender, or where we came from, or what we've done, but today we declare for Yahweh and through His chosen servant, Jesus, now we would be one with Him who made us and wants to remake us. Lord, bring into your family every repentant heart who bows and walks down the aisle today. In Jesus' name, amen.